Hello and welcome to this week's historic episode of Inside Briefing. We're putting out this podcast on the UK's last day in the European Union. By the time you listen, the UK may have left. 1,316 days since the referendum, Brexit is, in one sense, going to be done. We'll talk about what that really means, though, and what happens next. And to capture the spirit of the day, we caught up with Gisela Stewart, one of the leaders of the Vote Leave campaign, to look back on the referendum and the last three and a half years. We'll be talking to her later in the podcast. And it's also the week when Boris Johnson snubbed the US by choosing to use the Chinese tech giant Huawei for the UK's 5G network. We'll talk about what that means for Britain's alliances in the brave new world after Brexit. Today, I'm joined by a panel whose lives have perhaps to their surprise, been taken over by Brexit since that day of the vote that seems so long ago now, June 23rd, 2016. Maddie Timon-Jack is a researcher on the IFG's Brexit team and has written some of our essential Brexit reports that had a lot of effect on how Parliament approached the battle with government. Maddie, there's been a real change of mood in Westminster, hasn't there, since the election, when people really realise that Brexit's going to be done? Does it? How does it seem to you? Yeah, well, I think I think when, when we saw that exit poll, we knew that the UK was definitely going to be leaving the EU on the 31st of January. And I think from my perspective, as someone who's been following Parliament so much in the last few years, it was very odd to see the withdrawal agreement bill get royal assent without much fanfare at all, because by that stage, it was just a formality. And has it all gone quiet in Parliament? I had one, one peer saying to me yesterday, uh, oh gosh, it really feels uh, pretty subdued now. Yeah, I think, I mean, Parliament's role obviously has changed. And I think, again, that legislation going through without any amendment, the government didn't even listen to, to any MPs or peers about any of their concerns. And actually, they just said, look, we've got a majority of 87. You've just got to, you've got to live with it. And, and I think that for the moment anyway, that's, that's what it's going to be like. I don't want to predict what will happen maybe towards the end of the year. Or I'm not going to ask you that quite yet <laughs> anyway. Alex Thomas, who leads our work on the civil service, worked in the heart of it until the end of last year, seeing Brexit both in the Cabinet Office and from one wing of the No Deal planning. You're on the outside now, along with most of the population. So tell us all, what will civil servants be doing at 11pm on Friday when the UK leaves the EU? Well, safely on the outside, I will be uh, four hours into a train journey to uh, Cornwall, so watching the lights of Liscard and Bodmin Parkway flash past, which I probably wouldn't have been had I still been a civil civil servant visiting my parents. Um, many or even most civil servants will actually feel much like the rest of the population. They won't have been deeply involved in Brexit, so they'll be tucking themselves up in bed. And uh, those who were involved, I think, will be pleased that they're not uh, staffing 24-7 no-deal response centres uh, and... and uh, you know, on call. Uh, And I think perhaps to the surprise of many of those who uh, have had uh, criticisms of the civil service, uh, a lot of them will actually be kind of quietly relieved that this is happening and it's happening in an ordered way. So they may even be raising a glass. Well, we'll save the question of what happens at the end of the year later in the podcast. And we're delighted to be joined today by Peter Foster, Europe editor of the Daily Telegraph. Peter, previous postings took you to Washington and Beijing and New Delhi, not particularly quiet times either. When you started writing about Europe as Europe editor, did you expect to be plunged into this enormous story? I don't know that I did. You know, when I when I took the Europe editor job, David Cameron uh, had yet to win his majority and he'd yet to lose his referendum. Uh, and obviously those two things turned everyone's world up on its head. I mean, we have done nothing else almost literally since, right? I mean, the government, no one's done anything apart from Brexit for the last four years, and and it shows. And now you're about to move to the Financial Times. Congratulations. Thank you. To start as its policy editor. The FT, where I used to work uh, some time ago, has gone back and forth on this question of whether it's worth having a person dedicated to public policy. And I'm really glad that it's decided that. What's the thinking now about this? 
I think the, uh, the, the thinking is actually that whatever happens, whatever you, whether you attribute it to Brexit or anything else, we have a prime minister uh, who stands in a position, really not since Tony Blair did in 97, uh, where he's got a big majority. He's wedded, he's hitched his wagon to a hard Brexit, and that will produce an awful lot of change in the country, whether we like it or not, on devolution, on immigration, uh, on labour, across the piece. And I think... In a time where we are, frankly, in a culture war, and there's so much, you know, we have a pretty much a propagandist government at this point. The kind of check that comes from cross-referencing the hot air that's coming out of Westminster with the kind of cold, chilly winds that are, are blowing through uh, the rest of the country, I think is a kind of you know vital piece of the puzzle. So you're going to be looking at all these kind of policies and whether they really work or not? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm the sort of, as I would say, the real world correspondent, the wither, <laughs> the wither Britain correspondent outside the, outside the Westminster Great, bubble. well, I'll take you up on that. We'll have a lot of calls at the IFG to talk to you, I think. Mm. Before we wade into Brexit, I want to look at the government's decision to allow the Chinese firm Huawei to build some of the UK's 5G network, because it's the first taste we've got, really, of how the government sees Britain's role and its allies in the world after Brexit. Senior Conservative MPs like David Davis have been up in arms about this, they're very pro-American, and it's been reported that Defence Secretary Ben Wallace cautioned against the decision. So, Peter, this, this is the first big call for Boris Johnson in the post-Brexit age, isn't it? And the, and the US really isn't happy. There are two aspects to this. One is, obviously, we value our Five Eyes relationship. And do we really think the Americans are going to squeeze that relationship as a result of our decision to allow Just a Huawei? second. Alex, tell us what the Five Eyes is. Uh, it's the uh, information sharing partnership between some of the sort of closest intelligence uh, agencies in the world, um, uh, English speaking. And, Absolutely brilliant. Yeah, and, and, and we have a capricious president in the White House who doesn't necessarily take um, lessons from his friends in the spirit to which they're sometimes intended. And we are about to go into a trade relationship. And I think actually the signal on Huawei will actually probably impact the coming trade negotiation more than actually the intelligence sh- sharing relationship. And Johnson's obviously taken a decision that um, he needs to put a marker down. The second part is whether it's a good idea. And speaking as a former China China correspondent, it strikes me as a particularly bad idea, but one which is a sort of symptom of where we will be as a result of uh, being, frankly, piggy in the middle. I mean, Huawei is a company that couldn't get a listing on a stock exchange because it couldn't actually tell you who owns it. And no company in China reaches that kind of scale without essentially being in the pocket of, gov- of government, doing what it's told. And I can tell you the Chinese would not have us or the Americans building a third of their 5G network. And so from a kind of strategic point of view, it's not about whether there are bugs in the back of it. In fact, I can almost guarantee you there won't be. From a Chinese perspective, it's a strategic play about where they play their own games of divide and rule. And I think Washington's absolutely right that, you know, in another world, Downing Street says, well, it's a, you know, we're talking about two or three year delay Right? Are we really saying that collectively, between us, Europe and the West, we can't come up with our own solution? I just want to stick on this point you're raising, that really you're, you're arguing we don't need to know anything more about this than what we know about Huawei as a strategic company for the Chinese. On the other hand, I mean, Alex, the, the um, various uh, security bodies and the, the National Cyber Security Centre in particular mm. sounded really very confident in the advice, or at least what they said publicly, the advice that they gave the Prime Minister that this, this was OK. Mm. I was really struck this week uh, by the fact that whatever you know you think of the decision, and there are strong views on either side, 
side, the, the process and the structure of decision making has actually been quite impressive. And I think that's a function of how the uh, previous government set up the National Security Council in uh, 2010, and particularly the creation of the National Cyber Security Centre uh, a few years ago, has allowed this uh, decision to be taken by ministers, but on some really quite authoritative and quite confident-seeming advice, as you what say. What difference does that make, though? Point, because, I mean, yeah. the, I can <laughs> tell you they're sat in Jongnan High in where, where they're looking at what they've achieved, which is they've driven a wedge between the United Kingdom and the U- United States. Job done. It's not about um, I just the short-sightedness of it. And it'll all be dressed up as a kind of canny Boris, canny middle road strategic decision. It's the first of a whole series of decisions where the Brits have marginalised themselves between the United States, Europe and China and found themselves in a whole, a whole load of worst-case scenario decisions, in my view. Well, Alex, just, just tease this out for a bit for us. For, why should the process being better mean that the intelligence is better? Because it leads to better decisions. I mean, there are a group of technical experts who've looked at this stuff in detail over a number of years. I mean, they're not the people who can take the big strategic decision, uh, as Peter says, those are the ministers. I mean, that is a decision for the National Security Council and for the Prime Minister. That's a big strategic thing. But uh, my point is that that is based on, you know, as well-informed technical advice as, uh, as, as as is possible. I mean, the other thing, you mentioned the Americans and their feelings about it, Bronwyn. Uh, certainly, my sense is the Americans have not played this particularly well. If they were on a persuasion, love-bombing job with the UK, they've made it almost impossible for the Prime Minister to, uh, to, to take a decision and uh, they've um, not uh, you know, they've not had that same structure of evidence which has allowed them to justify their case. Well, let's come on to the Americans and the, the trade question because we've got all kinds of disagreements, some of them small, some of them huge, building up with the Americans. We've got the row over diplomatic immunity, the Anse Coulis, uh extradition row. We've got uh, the very big differences of opinion over the Iran nuclear deal, how to deal with Iran. We've probably got a big one coming right now on Israel and the President, President Trump's so-called Middle East peace plan, which encourages Israel to annex a lot of the, the, the West Bank. So these are things where Britain has a very different foreign policy view, if you like. Do you think that can be kept separate from trade talks in any way? No, they're all they're all of a piece. I mean, I, I, there's a I, there's a limit to which, frankly, the Brits matter. I mean, you know, whether it comes to Iran, yes, we make our E3 statements, but end of the day, European attempts to keep the, the economic backbone of the joint JCPOA, the Iran deal, you know, fell to pieces because ultimately, when the United States weaponizes its financial system, every company of size backs off. You know, I, you know, another example of. You know, Europe Brexit is an act of marginalisation for Europe collectively, and it's an act of marginalisation for the United Kingdom. And 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 the Iran situation entirely uh, demonstrates that we will find with the trade negotiations that it will have much the same effect. We can complain about, you know, the way the American is, Americans are behaving, but when it comes to tech taxes, when it comes to all the really big stuff, you know, there's a limit to. How much British foreign policy matters, frankly. You know, we are we're going to find ourselves in a position of sort of being a slightly bigger version of the Dutch. So, so this is really quite a, a kind of, um, uh, kind of um, uh, miserable uh, view that our, our foreign policy has diminished and it's well, going it to is. become we're subservient to our trade. It's not part of the Normandy trade. format. It started under Cameron. It didn't start under... 
It doesn't. It's not. You know, Brexit was one part of it. But All right, but the counter to that would be that um, actually we're we're positioning ourselves between the Americans and the Europeans, and say on the Iran deal, we've uh, put ourselves pretty close to the Europeans on this, and it yep. means that uh, I'm trying to make the very positive case that that this means that neither side can take us for granted. One of the things that our membership of the EU has done for the last 47 years is uh, depoliticize a lot of these things. It's it's made some of these choices about trade or uh, uh, or our global positioning uh, almost automatic. Uh, it's going to be really interesting and striking how um, politics is going to intrude on these big geopolitical decisions and uh, ministers will, will be exposed. Maddie, I'm fascinated about how this is playing in Parliament, whether because of the majority, actually, uh, Conservative MPs feel free to, um, they're not going to bring down the government by protesting, so they're going to be pretty noisy about it. Yeah, I mean, I think it is really interesting because, you know, Boris Johnson was able to deliver a very large majority, a working majority of 87. There are a lot of new Conservative MPs in Parliament, so I think his view will be, well, then, you know, you don't have necessarily the same potential rebels on the backbenches. But at the same time, you know, you actually only need to lose around 50 MPs to be able to suffer a defeat. And I think it will be very interesting as to whether this might not be the thing that the um, MPs will start rebelling over. But I do think he's not going to have to he's not going to be able to take that majority necessarily for granted. And if he keeps making decisions that upset certain backbenchers and the same group of backbenchers, then we might see Parliament um, proving a little bit more tricky for him than he necessarily expected. So Parliament's going to get noisier about this. Well, we're going to have to test these two visions of Boris Johnson, if you like. One very clever strategist uh, positioning Britain uh, in its uh, post-Brexit role or a sort of grandstanding swipe uh, from the leader of a declining country. Take your pick. We'll uh, judge those as it goes on. And now we come back to the historic subject of this week. At 11pm UK time, midnight in Brussels, Friday, January the 31st, the UK leaves the European Union. So let's look at how Brexit has changed British government and British politics, and let's talk about what happens next, because it isn't all over this week, far from it. Peter, let me start with you, just to set all this in context, just a step back. Looking back, Britain has had an ambivalent relationship with Europe for years, centuries, some people would say. Does it seem inevitable that we were going to leave? Is is this a historical accident or was it an inevitability? I don't know whether it was an inevitability that we were going to leave. I think if you go back to the foundation of the single market broadly, we always saw it as an equivalence regime, if you want to use the current jargon, and the Europeans always... Actually, saw- I don't. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. So, so in the sense that the European vision was always about harmonisation. We'd all follow the same rules with the same referee and the ECG and, and the ECG. Right, and I, haven't, I haven't done my and, time in and, Brussels. And, and broadly from a UK perspective, it was all about, well, our rules will be this roughly the same as yours and we'll all agree to kind of have our own autonomy but act in that, in that area. And so the story of our relationship with Europe has always been a kind of fudge on that. So we didn't join the Euro on justice and home affairs like the European arrest warrant. We were opted in where we wanted to be opted in. You know, we were given special status. We weren't in the common asylum policy, which is why we were outside. You know, so we had this special cherry pick relationship. And when we asked to further cherry pick it under David Cameron, who'd made the mistake of blaming you know, the EU for uh, uh, the migration crisis, which we had actually helped create because we never took, you know, when when the Eastern European countries joined, the A8 accession countries joined, every other European state apart from Sweden and Ireland took the break, which allowed them to phase in migration. We didn't. We lectured the Europeans about their, their lack of openness. And then we set a kind of arbitrary 
below 100,000 a year target, which meant that every time the target came up, we blamed free movement. So I just think that direction of travel meant that we were always on the way out. And I think one of the sort of sad things is that we had kind of increasingly codified it out relationship. But Brexit, just the function, the way Brexit works means that we're going to be out. But codifying that relationship, remaking that relationship as a third country is not going to be on the same sort of, you know, exasperated but friendly terms that it was done for the last 40 years. Exasperated and unfriendly terms, possibly. But you touched on something I really wanted to ask you about, um, which is whether Britain made itself a strategic error. And I'm not thinking about the ins and outs of Cameron's deal, but when it championed in a great, romantic, uh, passionate uh, way, the expansion eastward of the European Union, saying, look, this is about democratic values and let's bring these countries into the embrace of the West. It didn't think enough about what that was going to mean for the European Union and indeed for Britain. You know, with hindsight, maybe that's right. But if you look at where look at where Russia is now, broadly speaking, for the neighbourhood, it is a good thing. I, I, Victor, I, I'm Victor, very much Victor, a supporter Victor, of it. I, Victor, I have to say, but Victor it's, Orban yeah, and yeah, and yeah. and Kuczynski, the Law and Justice government in Poland yeah. aside, it's actually, you know, I think broadly speaking, strategically a good thing. And I and I think actually we should be proud of that. It's a great shame that the the mishandling of that and some very selfish and silly political behaviour uh, with David Cameron sitting on sofas blaming Poles for taking all their benefits back to Poland. 20, do you know how 25 million, not billion, 25 million pounds was the total amount of uh, uh, benefits exported to third countries, right? And that entire negotiation was about whether or not you should be able to send your unemployment back, back, back to Poland. I mean, the nonsense of that, but you're... You know, I still believe but, that and, and in I, think, the end- I think you're absolutely right that in the, those kind of rather bitter, sour details, this great, uh, astonishing movement, it was one of the huge political gestures of our time and this eastward expansion without bloodshed, uh, which, which I, um, you know, I think many people have found inspiring, but it did, it, it, you know, the details did not get and it will looked yet, at until I think later when, and they, they, they did. Yes, however nasty this gets, it will yet prove to have been the right decision. You know, Donald Tusk, you know, a guy who the former European Council president grew up politically in the shipyards of Gdansk. You know, that's why he was so emotively attached to reversing Brexit and so wounded by Brexit, is that, you know, for him, the European Union and Poland joining the European Union was just part of that grand sweep. And I think Brexit will interrupt that. But actually, from a strategic point of view, I'm less worried, actually, about how the EU, how the EU and the UK will dovetail on that, on that level. Well, we'll come, we'll come on to the future in a little bit. Uh, but uh, Alex, when you think back that uh, that day in June and suddenly the news came in, the vote came in and you're in the heart of the civil service at that point and suddenly essentially got your new set of orders of this is what we've got to do. What was the reaction? There was... Uh you know, there was there was definitely a sort of moment of trauma, um, not uh, because uh, the civil service was stuffed full of remainers, although uh, you know it clearly reflects its geographical profile, but it was a sort of realization of the enormity of it. I mean, this is this this was a huge, huge moment. Uh, the civil service had done some limited preparation, but had been under constraint from really thinking through and gaming through what this might mean. So, so I think people initially were struck, you know, and quite emotionally with the with the significance of it, and then quickly you move into the goodness me, we're going to have to recruit thousands and thousands more people we're going to have to come no we've now had about, about essentially about 20,000 come in since then yeah. what about this this question of having to sort of live two parallel versions of the future 
sector at once. I mean, one that uh, with a deal um, and one with no deal. And in a way, have we still got that this the, the, this year? Yeah. So I think you've you absolutely put your finger on the, the heart of the difficulty for the civil service. Yes, huge uh, recruitment and uh, organisational and uh, other challenges. Um, but in the end, the thing that causes the most stress was trying to uh, trying to plan for uh, mutually incompatible and inconsistent futures. Uh, and that's that, that, that happened uh, last year. Uh, I absolutely think that we're, uh, you know, we're on a course for something similar over um, the course of this year. Although, if you want to know what the government thinks, listen to it. Uh, and I think the civil service will be operating under uh, clearer instructions now than has been the case in the past in terms of planning for the end of this year. That doesn't minimise the readiness challenge. Uh, I mean, I would keep a, a really close eye on how uh, the government and particularly the uh, sort of HMRC uh, and, and, and related departments are, are planning for um, the, the readiness of what happens uh, at the border. If civil servants in at the moment in these jobs, do they think it's a job of a couple of years, of 10 years, of really essentially the rest of their working lives? So the context is for the rest of the working lives. I mean, this is a, it goes back to that moment in 2016. It is a profound change. It, it is something that energises the civil service. The civil service works best when it's given a clear direction. Uh, and actually, uh, Brexit has uh, has energised a lot of the civil service. He, he may or may not thank me for saying it, but there are you know, many thousands of civil servants who are energetically posting pictures of their kittens on Twitter while reading every word that Peter uh, writes in his uh, in his <laughs> threads because they're absolutely fascinated by this 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 huge public policy uh, project. Uh, some people will see that as the defining mission of their careers. Others will think, right, I will help out for two or three years and then I'll go off and do something else and uh, and, and refresh the brain. By uh, by thinking about a different bit of public policy, and I'm wondering as you're, as you're talking whether it's the, the defining mission of uh, part at least part of the IFG for the the coming years, uh, Maddie. Yeah, I just wanted to ask Alex. I mean, obviously you were working on Brexit, but what do you think it was like for those who weren't working on Brexit? Because obviously all of government energy was focused on this big challenge, but there's so much other stuff that government also needs to do. And if ministers' mm-hmm. energy is all focused in one place, was mm-hmm. that? Do you think it was hard for those civil servants? Yeah. So I've done both over yeah, the last few okay. years. Um, there's a horrible phrase. Uh, and it's business as usual. Uh, and there are civil servants who've been described as doing business as usual work. And of course, that's really important work and actually goes to goes to what would normally be very sort of stretching and uh, interesting uh, objectives for, for ministers. But there is a bit of a sense that, that the civil service is divided between exciting Brexit stuff and the business as usual stuff. I, I increasingly think actually that's coming together. Mm. Um, you know, Brexit work is not Brexit work now. It is just what the, uh, you know, delivering the, um, the, the, the uh, objectives for, for the government. So I think mm. and hope that that will, will come together and that that divide won't exist. Maddie, I just wanted, as we're picking up these things about what has changed and what the imprint of Brexit at this point has been. What's it done to Parliament? Has has Parliament had a good Brexit? Was it in the end blocking what was inevitable? I think it's really hard to say whether or not Parliament had a good Brexit. I mean, it really depends how you're measuring it. I think 2019, I think a lot of the parliamentary experts were surprised by how interested everyone was in the sort of minutiae of parliamentary procedure. So talking about standing order number 24. I mean, this is this is the sort of emergency debate motion MPs used to legislate to try and stop no deal. But up until last summer, I don't think anyone really knew what that was. Um, And so there's obviously been there was a huge focus on on what 
Parliament did. Um, but at the same time, we did see a complete la- a sort of drop in trust in, in politicians and MPs as well. So I think that's also be- been a challenge for Parliament. Um, in terms of sort of blocking the inevitable, I think the, the big frustration for a lot of people watching what was going on in 2019 was that we knew there was a majority against no deal. There wasn't a majority for anything else. And again, you could say that reflected the state of the country, where any polls also showed that the country was very divided on what they wanted on Brexit. But I do think that was a big challenge for Parliament and it led to lots of people feeling like actually Parliament just wasn't doing anything. So what happens um, to all these very technical things like standing orders and indicative votes and all the things the country briefly got really expert on? Um, do we forget about them now? Does Parliament forget about them? Or has it got a new set of techniques that it can use to challenge the government? I I think that's a really interesting question and I think a lot of that actually does come down to the fact that we've had a change in speaker. So Speaker Burko was was the person who was quite willing to be a bit flexible and creative in his interpretation of parliamentary rules. And, and we've got Lindsay Hoyle now, who who is very clearly uh, sort of indicating that he doesn't want to continue that. Um, but but it's also worth saying the government was also quite creative in how it approached parliamentary procedure. And, and it's it, slightly euphemistic, isn't it? On sorry. Side. Anyway, yeah. yeah no, right, no, right. I'm being, being generous. Lots okay. of bending but, of the rules. But it was bending of the rules. I mean, you know, there were some big debates about whether the way government handled parliament was fair and actually not giving parliament enough time and not necessarily respecting the decisions that parliament made and then on the other hand MPs were basically they were saying to the government we won't let you deliver your policy but we also won't vote you out so you know those were two quite I think there were good arguments on both sides to say that both both sides weren't being particularly fair This was all a function of not having a majority Exactly The British system doesn't really work when there isn't a majority and that's why we got these extraordinary creative bending things Mm. you know and it's a tussle between government and, and parliament uh, that's why it gummed up. No, exactly. And, and it is fair to say that maybe for the foreseeable future that those things won't be on the front page of newspapers and you're not going to be discussing standing orders. But we don't, we can't guarantee that we're not ever going to return to a time when we have minority government in the future. And I think clearly we've seen that there are ways that you can bend the rules. Um, and I think it, it's going to be a question as to whether the government or MPs want to try and uh, clarify some of those rules to stop that happening again or whether we just wait, sit back and see whether in five, ten years time um, we start we start looking back at, at these uh, to try and use them again. Well, we, we, we will certainly do that in five, ten years' time, but I just want to pick up on this point about whether the government with a majority can shrug off scrutiny and challenge of the kind that you've been talking about. Um, we just talked about select committee chairs being elected, so they'll be back. They'll, they'll start uh, arguing with the government. The La- Labour is going through a very long process of picking its new leader, so there's not a lot of challenge there. Peter, what's your view about whether the government is actually prepared to um, be challenged? It's interesting, isn't it? You know, the answer to every difficult question at the moment with the government is 87 Right. You know, you know, you, you can say, well, we you know we've only got 4000 customs clearance agents and 200 and 200, 250,000 small businesses are going to be doing customs declarations for the first time. And you guys aren't putting any money uh, into creating more customs clearance agents. One tiny thing. Right. You know, rules of origin changes are going to screw X farmer, X chicken farm, X whatever. 87. Right. 87. We can do what we like. 87. Um, they stripped out Section 31 of the original withdrawal agreement bill. They wouldn't even hold a vote on their negotiating objectives in the EU deal, even though they were guaranteed to win it, right? It gives you an idea of where they think they are. Now, how long that can last, I think, is a different thing altogether because, um, you know, what they are doing quite an extraordinary thing, right? 60% of our trade, 47% of our exports, about 8% of our GDP is dependent on trade with the European Union. And they are about to put that trade on the same footing as Canada, trades with Europe. And in doing so, 
they are going to change a lot of lives and change a lot of livelihoods. And I think they're killing themselves if they think they can do that without any kind of blowback. And I think one of the one of the kind of things that we really don't know at the moment, because both sides, you know, the the European side is being full on Article fifty ish in terms of sort of sequencing and these are the rules and there's no wiggle room. And the government is being, well, we'll we'll stick to our guns come what may. Now we know that in the last round of negotiations, the government talked tough and folded quietly. If they're not going to fold quietly in October, then I suspect that a lot of the real world outcomes over the next one, two, three years will cause ructions in Parliament. And at the end of the day, they've got a majority, you know, they, they, you know, well, let's, 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 let's move as we've been sort of tugging right through this conversation to talk about the future. Where do these trade talks go? We've got Britain trying to do a deal with the, uh, the EU, though civil servants have told us that they've been told to plan on the basis that there might not be one and any deal is a, is a bonus. And we've got the American situation that we were just describing. I mean, Peter, you know, who's, um, who's got the upper hand in this? Well, I mean, the European... Union has the upper hand on one level, but this comes back to neighbourhoods, right? Although there is not much economic difference between a bare bones free trade agreement, which is the only type, the only type that's available, and a WTO type exit, there is a big political difference. So the economic difference is not, not that different because ultimately you show up at the border and you need your rules of origin certificate, you need your VET certificate, you need your conformity standards certificate, etc. The cost of getting all that stuff together whether or not you're paying the tariff or not is kind of neither here nor there. So then I think both sides have to think very hard as they set out their very red lines at the moment, which both sides are doing. Boris Johnson saying, we're going to diverge, even if that means we have to pay tariffs, even though there actually isn't time to do a line-by-line tariff negotiation in October, right? I mean, there's a lot of nonsense being talked. But the EU is also taking very hard positions, right? We don't we won't necessarily do a data adequacy agreement till right at the end. And the bog saying, standard services They're agreement. saying really, aren't they, that they want something more ambitious than they've done with other free trade agreements because we're so close. So they want lots of alignment. Well, I, I'm not even sure. I think what they're saying is we can take the best bits of all different free trade agreements that we've done with Japan, Canada, New Zealand, etc., and we can bolt them together. But whether we will or not will kind of depend on your offer. So, for example, New Zealand has a veterinary deal which significantly chucks cuts the number of physical checks that you do. You're still going to have all your paperwork in order, but that would be a big facilitatory agreement. Now, the EU has done that for another third country. It could do that for us. But if we're off doing the chlorinated chicken dance with the United States and the European Union wants to use that facilitation cherry to make us think hard about that, then the European Union is in constantly in a place where it will make us put very hard edges on our choices. So, for example, one of the things is what they call mutual recognition conformity assessment, the ability for our inspectors to sign certificates that they will accept. Now, there are MRAs, these agreements, between the European Union and lots of other third countries, including ones that they don't actually have trade deals with, like the United States. Now, the Commission has said to the Member States, look, we can do this, but it's not an offensive interest, right? So when the UK comes to make its decisions in October, it will do so with all of these swords of Damocles hanging hanging over their heads. Now, whether or not that causes us to fold or to walk away, 
Which is still possible, isn't Which it? I is mean, absolutely the, still the prime minister has made it you know, very clear that he would. And Maddie, I mean, there's still people in his party, aren't there, who are very keen to say, walk away the minute something like, uh, as Peter's been describing, something uh, provocative comes up, never mind things like fish or the European Court of Justice. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I think I think it's it's really important to say that is still a possibility. I think I mean Peter's right that obviously that does come down to political choice and does does the UK government, the EU, do they want to say that they were able to come to it, reach a deal or are they willing to take the sort of hit of saying actually no, we couldn't reach agreement at all? But I do think you know depending on the sort of strings that come with the EU's offer that the UK government will have to decide whether or not they accept. Um, the UK government could easily walk away. But, but that will that will have implications. I mean, no, it's worth saying no deal in December is not the same as no deal in Correct. March. It's, it's, no, October it's, last no, year. it's no trade deal. It's no trade deal, it? but it's also no security deal. I mean, it's not just trade. It does actually cover broader areas. What it, what it does... What, but it's a, 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 um, a lower cliff edge, maybe, than, than, than it would have been of just walking out. I wouldn't necessarily say that. I mean, what it what, what the withdrawal agreement covers is, is we know that citizens' rights are going to be protected in the U, you know, UK citizens in the EU and EU citizens so in the So this is UK. regardless of, of whatever regardless else happens. Regardless of what else happens, citizens' happen. rights are protected we will continue to pay money to the EU and we've got an arrangement where there will not be a border on the island of Ireland that's the Northern Ireland Protocol everything else is gone so you still are facing a very hard cliff edge and as I say I mean the thing that we haven't discussed and people keep not discussing is our security relationship and security cooperation and that is something that both sides really want to agree on how to manage that but that will fall away as well and you know it no no agreement at the end of December 2020 it's not the same as last year but it is still a very big deal Alex what, what you know what's realistic during this year what actually can be done in 11 months well there's a question um, <laughs> I, I mean I, I, I would say it's, Peter said it uh, mm. earlier it's the you know th- there are a series of choices um, but they are low ambition choices uh, and the question for me is whether that's a you know whether that's a building block to a sort of incrementally deeper and closer relationship over the next five ten years, um, or whether there's a rupture and then we're dealing with the fallout of that. Um, uh, and then and then there's a rupture, but then we still end up. I yeah. mean, gravity yeah. is a thing, right? Yeah. You know, the, the bottom line is meaning what? Well, in a trade perspective, you know, uh, double distance half the trade. So this idea that we're going to have a rupture and then we're going to go off and make up the right. difference no, by trading. And the problem is, do you use? But, uh, but uh, also. Uh, that it's term. a neighbourhood, the point you made yeah. at the beginning on, on climate change, on tech mm. taxes, on JCPOA, Iran, on all of the big stuff, the way, you know, this sort of uh, decoupling between US and China. We're with the Europeans, right? So on the so you talk about the security relationship, the big stuff takes place outside the treaties anyway. Macron has his European intervention initiative precisely to do an end run around PESCO, the structured cooperation on defence that, that was created by the EU. So there'll be an E3 format. Mm. And if there's another Ukraine scenario where it required sanctions on Russia, you couldn't put those together without having the Brits in the room anyway. So just to pull together this point, this the security questions, are they going to be part of the deal that we are trying to do by the end of the year? Uh, uh, yes, uh, there will be an embryo. There'll be still lots of practical stuff to work out. But I think uh, it's also, you need to be clear that a lot of it will be quite siloed. So... I think if we think we can leverage the security piece against the trade piece, we may come away disappointed. I'd say yes as well. And uh, it's in the UK's interests for them to be part of the deal. So uh, that's our main leverage. So try and be more tactful than Theresa May was about it, but uh, try and get some leverage for that. Maddie, just finally on this. So this weekend, the UK is going to leave, enter the, into the transition period. What exactly changes this weekend? So so it is really important. Uh, the UK will no longer be a member state of the EU. It will have 
have left all the political institutions. There will no longer be MEPs in the European Parliament and or commissioner. And for normal person sitting but, in Britain, what But changes? exactly, on, on the ground, really not much does change. So part of our deal has been negotiating this transition period, what the government calls an implementation period, um, which basically means we'll continue to be part of the single market and part of the customs union. Most other EU rules will continue to operate as usual. I mean, interestingly, there will be a slight change around extradition, actually. Um, certain member states will no longer extradite their own nationals to the UK. Um, but no, not much does change. Um, we will. The EU is writing to all of their so trade partners to ask the UK to com- continue to be treated as a member state during that time. But that choice will be up to those other those countries that the EU has a trade deal with. So, and um, we expect none none of that to change. But it is worth keeping an eye on that. Now, former Labour MP Gisela Stewart was one of the leading lights of the Vote Leave campaign, along with Boris Johnson and Michael Gove. She was there for their victory press conference, watched on as Johnson and Gove fell out with each other. She then campaigned for Boris Johnson at the general election. She spoke to Kath Haddon about the fight to get Brexit done, what happens now, and what Dominic Cummings, the Prime Minister's top adviser, is really like. There's the famous footage of the morning after the Brexit referendum votes and it's written up that you and Boris Johnson and Michael Gove, the leaders of the official Leave campaign, were in shock because you hadn't expected to win. What's the truth? What what happened is that we were clear that uh, I would go up to Manchester on my own and uh, on the basis that I would take the result because I didn't want it to be tainted by any Tory leadership. Uh, argument. We knew that whatever the result, uh, there would be some debate. Um, and But I also always used to say to both to Boris and Michael, uh, once the referendum is over, uh, I'm back on, on the Labour side and you're on the other side. It is over to you, government. What happened on, on the night before, it, the last conversation we had together is uh, Dom Cummings saying, remember, if the turnout is below 60%, we've won. If it's between 60 and 68, they have won. If it's over 68, we have won again. So for me, uh, the moment was that the the minute the exit polls came and they said, we're looking at a turnout of 72%, I worked on the assumption that we have won. I think there was quite a shock in terms of what that meant, not least by the utterly, utterly unexpected resignation of David Cameron in the early hours of the morning. So I think whilst they were uncertain about what the outcome would be, it was Cameron's resignation suddenly totally crystallised it. And you could argue it took them just like the the country three and a half years to recalibrate. That recalibration, I mean, there were some tumultuous days after David Cameron resigned and then the Tory leadership contest. What did it feel like watching as Gove famously challenged uh, Boris Johnson then for the leadership and then Boris Johnson quit and then Gove quit as well? Did you worry at that point about the future of Brexit? Yes, I did. Uh, But then I was lulled into an early sense of security by the the miraculous emergence of Theresa May as Prime Minister. Uh, No general election, no leadership context. She comes in and she says Brexit means Brexit. Uh, And that was the moment when I and a group of us set up Change Britain and we made our aim to bring Remainers and Leavers together, wanted to do some proper research, know what was going on. And what surprised me is 
Theresa May was incapable of taking a a national referendum result which was achieved by cross-party work and make its implementation also a cross-party national enterprise. And the second one, which I really didn't realise, is just how deep the grievance of the Remain voters were, who still to this day will argue that we may have lost, they concede that, so can can you leave us now, stop reminding us that we've lost? But they're still absolutely convinced that they were right. And that's the bit where we have to move on from. Can we turn to talking about this government uh, in particular? You've worked closely with Dominic Cummings. He's a man in the news quite frequently at the moment. But what's he really like? I really like him. Uh, and I, I do recommend uh, anybody watching the Benedict Cumberbatch uh, play, where, whereas I think that... Everybody else wasn't necessarily portrayed in 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 the in the, in the nicest uh, light or in the most accurate light, uh, and that even includes Boris Johnson. But I think uh, he got Dom Cummings absolutely right. The thing you've got to remember is that Dom hates lazy people and stupid people, but he contests his own views. People who who say he's difficult to work with. He's challenging to work with, but I didn't find him difficult to work with. He's incredibly focused on delivery. He does not think his ego is more important than outcome. And that's always the big danger with politicians. Uh, I call it the inhaling, uh, when they start thinking that they are more important than the outcome. That's not something which um, Dom suffers from. And uh, I think at the moment he's giving an enormous structure uh, to to the government. And the other thing I would say is when I looked at the team Boris Johnson took with him into number 10, who had worked together before in vote leave, and these were people who I'd worked with under enormous stress and tensions at times, they were all good people. So I was encouraged in terms of the future just by looking at the team he took, he'd taken with him. What about the Prime Minister himself? Uh, you know, How do you think he sees himself and what kind of Prime Minister does he want to be? There's one thing which everybody tells me, and that is that whatever person you were before you walked through that black door with the lettering 10 on, once you've gone through that, you do change. And I don't know in, in the sense of how, how he changed, but... Just looking at it, I think that the thing which was the the the, the playful Boris Johnson, the 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 one which uh, could sort of just make throwaway remarks because it had just come into his head, that has gone. I think there is a man there who is aware of the responsibilities of being a prime minister, but also realizes he could be a very significant prime minister. Uh, provided he 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 gets it right, and you you opened this 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 podcast with uh, the moment of when the three of us were together uh, after the referendum, and we were all exceptionally tired and and, and somewhat shell shocked. Uh, we actually hadn't been the three of us together uh, until November the, last year uh, during the run up of the general election, uh, when it was a bit of a, a moment of friends reunited and. Uh, you know, rather surprisingly, it it felt good to have the team back together. Gisela Stewart speaking to Kath Haddon. 
And that interview is a reminder of this extraordinarily slow Labour leadership race, which has meant that Her Majesty's official opposition is pretty much absent from the decisions and debates that are going on on Huawei, Brexit, reshuffle that may come, the budget that's coming. Peter, what are the consequences of Labour really not being there, of the, the sound of silence, if you like? Well, they're pretty limited, honestly, at the moment, because the government has a majority of 87. So so actually, there's always a limit. I think, But there's no one speaking really no, out on no, that. And, and actually, um, it is an extraordinary thing, right? The lack of public, not just the opposition, the entire lack of serious public debate about what we're about to do and what it means. And that's true. I mean, one of the things, it's not just Brexit, the Green New Deal, the zero carbon target by 2050, done last year without any... No. No single, plan? No plan? Yeah. Something we at the Institute so, are, so, are working on? Absolutely so, no plan so, how to so, get there. So yeah. I think, but in the medium term, if the government, the government's positions are just full of wild contradictions. And if the government, um, the government feels, I think, in lots of ways that politics is decoupled from economics. And if it, it, if the government falls victim to the kind of hubris of the first stage, that it can do everything, and the Freight Transport Association are just a bunch of Ramonas, and frankly, you know, every time they get said, well, what, what are you going to do about, you know, nuclear particles for uh, for, for um, medicines, etc.? What are you going to do about the PRUM database? And then all these stuff will start to have an impact. So even though now, as they stand there with a mass- massive majority, it's quite hard for an opposition leader to make a big impact. I think the time will come when we have real-world consequences as a result of these decisions on HS2, on Brexit, etc. Then it will matter who's at the dispatch box. And if Labour are sensible, they'll put someone there who looks ripe for government, not another iteration of Jeremy Corbyn, uh, who I think has sort of proved that the appetite for radicalism in the country uh, uh, is fairly... Well, and it's, as, as we all know, contested by some of the leadership co- um, candidates. And that's it for this week's Inside Briefing. We'll meet again outside the EU in the new world of the transition period next week. And while I can't promise that we'll follow the government edict to never mention Brexit again, there's also an awful lot more to talk about. So before we go, quick question to my panel. What's coming down the track? Maddie? Well, one of one of the things that everyone in, in Westminster and beyond are going to be watching is uh, the government reshuffle. Uh, it's been anticipated for quite a while since the election and we'll be looking to see whether there are any new departments, merging of departments, who's out and who's in. Uh, Minister's been waiting that for quite a long time. Alex, what do you think? I'll be uh, looking west, even further west than my trip to Cornwall, uh, to the United States, where it's the Iowa caucuses on Monday. Uh, fascinating expression of democracy, but also alongside uh, the uh, Trump impeachment uh, trial. We don't quite know how long that's going to last, but big debate at the moment over whether to call witnesses, what John Bolton might say or not say, and how that plays out. Peter, what do you reckon? I, I think devolution is going to be interesting. How government is going to disperse this uh, shared prosperity fund to the regions that's going to replace EU structural funds. Can't just take the money and leave it by the side of the road. <laughs> I mean, you know, either, the distribution is unequal at the moment. If you change it, you upset the people who were getting more, you know, and you don't, you, you're going to hide into nothing there. Unless you give everyone more. That seems to be what the Prime Minister's that might, promising. That might, might be that. And I think broadly speaking, you know, we don't realise the extent to which the EU single market underpinned the UK's internal market. And when we're out, there's a bunch of things on food labelling, on chlorinated chickens, etc., which are going to see Scottish and Welsh devolved competences rubbing up against Westminster. We've already seen, I can see that ending in court uh, as to where exactly, you know, devolved and and reserved competences lie. Uh, And of course, the government in Scotland has a vested interest in not making this easy. Well, uh, be careful what you say. That is absolutely one of our prime subjects. So we're going to be knocking at your door to come back and talk to us about it. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts, and you can stream us on Spotify too. 
And if Brexit is done, then get your Inside Briefing podcast review done too. In the spirit of bringing the country together, we welcome all opinions. It's a Constitution special at the Institute next week. We've got an event on Tuesday featuring Gina Miller and Jonathan Sumption, both almost household names now, which will look at what the government's proposed Constitution review should cover. And the following day, we've gathered some of the architects of the infamous Fixed-Term Parliaments Act to discuss whether it is right to give the power back to the Prime Minister to call elections when he wants and whether he can just take it back. You can follow both events on our live stream and do visit our website at instituteforgovernment.org.uk for all of our work. So for the last time inside the EU, the goodbye from all of us at Inside Briefing. See you next week.